What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you are a judge, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It is such a joy to be with you. My name is Jim Stitzinger. I don't often get to be in this service because I'm normally back with the first and second graders, and I see one of them right here. So me and Nora, we got this service. It is a thrill to get to be with all those little kids. And for those of you who are parents who normally drop by the door, thank you for the time we get to talk. I know it's brief moments, but it is a constant thrill to get to see how God illuminates his word in the hearts of young people. And for parents here, I know it's a relentless effort, but it is absolutely a thrill. And though you don't always get to see their best behavior, sometimes I have kids and sometimes they do their best things when we're not around. Um, It's amazing to see. If you have your Bible, open it to James chapter four. Is there anyone here who's never been in an argument? Anyone here who has never had a conflict with another human being? If you are someone here who has never had tension, you can be dismissed because the rest of us have a little bit of studying to do. Conflict is such a part of life that we've come to expect it, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's all around us. It's, apparently, it's intergalactic because now we have a space force. It's global. It's physical wars, trade wars, international debates, tensions between nations. It's local too, right? There's protests and angry words are shouted back and forth as people form up in different lines to yell at each other. That's just you trying to get to church. Some of you have perfected the parking lot miracle. You know what this is, right? You fight all the way to church and somehow you turn into that parking lot out there and boom, instant sainthood. Some of you don't get to that point until you grab your cup of coffee. Maybe we should put the coffee by the entrance and just make it a little more efficient. No, it's in our DNA, right? I mean, why are our kids' first words, no, and gimme, instead of thank you? I mean... We feed off conflict, right? No one wants to see the new Marvel comic movie about a great big picnic. We want war. We want heroes and villains, verbal grenades and mic drops. Imagine the, head, the headline failure. Six people helped downtown today. A lost wallet was returned. Police gathered to celebrate teens cleaning up streets. It's like, 
Those aren't headlines. We want disaster. It's in our universe. It's in our home. It's in our church. It's in this room. Christians fight. We fight over good things. We fight over how ministry should be structured, how it should be carried out, over who gets to do what. We recently celebrated our 16th anniversary. My wife, Sky and I um, had a, just a great time celebrating that. And as we watch the years go by, we get more and more excited about what God's doing. And yet we always want to be perpetual students. So I asked about 30 couples to give me their marriage pro tips. And all these 30 couples have been married 25, 30 years or longer. I said, I just, Roman notes say, would you please just take a few minutes and send me back what you wish you knew at 16 years of marriage? Like, what should I be thinking about? Because we got to this point, but how do we live excellently for the next 15, 16 years? Like, how do we get there? What do we need to know? How do you put God's word in practice? And many of them came back with great answers, but every single one of them had line after line on how to deal with conflict. And that taught me two things. One, that conflict doesn't go away even when we've been married for 30, 40, or 50 years. But it also tells me that it can be resolved because God in his grace gives grace throughout every season in life. Ever notice how far we'll go to escape conflict? We won't call it sin. We'll do all kinds of verbal gymnastics. We call it personality clashes, irreconcilable differences, bad chemistry, introvert, extrovert, creative, linear, not a morning person. We'll use all kinds of phrases to avoid just simply calling it what it is. I mean, some of you go so far to avoid conflict that you see a brother or sister coming towards you and your prayer life spikes as you say, rapture, rapture, rapture. Oh, hi. I mean, you walk clear around the store just to evade somebody you saw come in that you really don't want to talk to. We can't escape conflict. We can't ignore it forever. We can't avoid it, so we better learn how to stop it. Everyone in this room is scarred by it. No one escapes it. Maybe today you are here in the midst of a verbal battle. It could be that this room and these moments where we sing and we shake each other's hands and we look each other in the eye and we remind each other of God's goodness, maybe this is the only moments of peace for you because your home in the context where you are in work or your community, wherever is going on, is war. And this is the only reprieve you get from the Genesis 3 world that you're living in. Conflict's all around us. As I said, we're all scarred by it. No one escapes it. But there's hope. There is hope. There is such incredible hope for dealing with conflict. The passage that's in front of us today is one that lifts our eyes above the horizon, above the fog and the chaos of war, and lets us see a little bit of the future and how to make that the present. God put this chapter right here right now in front of us today so that we learn how conflict starts, how it's fueled, and how to stop it. So let's dig in. Chapter four, verse one. It starts with asking this question as it shows us the chaos of conflict. The question is this, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Now, someone just said, she's right here or he's right there or I dropped them off in the nursery. It's the humidity, it's our weak AC, it's taxes, it's traffic, it's endless other things that we love to point out as the source of quarrels and conflicts. You know, we need this question because we need to know that we're not alone in this issue. 
Some people say, I, I just want to be in a church. It's like the early church when, when Jesus was here. And I read this and I say, no, you don't. They had all the quarrels and conflicts that we have today. There's no sin issue missing from our context that wasn't present in their context. And the question reminds us that God in his kindness and in his mercy doesn't immediately condemn us. He doesn't immediately say there's eternal hell for you because you fought with someone. In fact, what he says is let me show you how to figure out what's starting all that conflict. Let me show you how to figure out what's fueling it, what's feeding it. And then let me show you how to stop it. The question is important. But the question has a couple words embedded in it. It says, what are the source of quarrels and conflicts? These are believers that James is writing to and they're arguing amongst themselves. They're bickering. The plural says that it's ongoing. This isn't a one-time event. This is something that's happening regularly, ongoing. But it's in the context of the church. The church that's supposed to be a little snapshot of heaven. The church that's supposed to give us a little bit of the supernatural love and peace and grace that flows back and forth between Christians. The church that's supposed to be overflowing with love, as Jesus says in John 13, right? I mean, aren't we supposed to be one body standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel? As Paul said in Philippians 1, 27. Like, isn't that what we're supposed to be? But not in the church that James is writing to. These are people known for their contentiousness. There's so much tension that's bowing them up. You know, James never tells us what it is, and frankly, it doesn't matter. I mean, God doesn't tell us things, and the reason is because it's not important. We don't need to know why they're fighting. It's the fact that they're fighting. And that's where our attention is drawn to. James is saying, this is the stuff we've been saved from, the stuff we've been saved out of, the stuff that's characteristic of the old life, not what's characteristic of you today. But he uses words that are so full of gravity and sobriety. He calls it sin. He says, where is this coming from? Well, the answer begins with understanding our deadly desires. And that's the next sentence in verse one. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Your pleasures, what makes you feel good? Waging war, declaring battle against your members. Members is your body. That's a word that both Paul and James use referring to your physical body. He says that there is a war waging within you, pitting what you want against what you know. On one side, we have a heart that belongs to Jesus Christ, a mind that's informed by God and his word, the spirit that indwells us. We got the whole Trinity involved with making us holy. And on the other side, we have our sinful desires, our sinful longings, our sinful passions, cravings, declaring war against God. The source of the conflict is so simple. It starts from one source, one answer to one question. And here it is. What do you want? What do you want? The moment that little ember hits the flash pan of anger and blasts into a furnace and the conflict erupts, pause and ask the question, what do I want? What is the desire I'm trying to fulfill? What's the longing I'm trying to solve? What is the motive behind this interaction? Every conflict in our mind, in our relationships, in our church erupts from one source of what we want. And James is saying the feuding that's happening here 
is birthed out of sinful pursuits of pleasures that rip us apart. Instead of pursuing what is good, they're pursuing what feels good. Now the word focuses on the sensual category, but it includes anything that our hearts campaign for. You see, this is Satan's playground. You've got to understand, this is where Satan does his work. This is what he did with Eve. Eve was in the garden, had the forbidden fruit, the tree was there. She knew that God had said, don't eat of it. And Satan comes along and slips in the suggestion that God doesn't really love you. Your desires aren't really being met. Your needs are not really being cared for. The solution is in what you're being prevented from obtaining. And if you just have it, you'll have what you want. Of course, you know she takes the fruit, eats, and plunges us into sin. You see how that works? What you want, your cravings, your desires, go to war with what you know. And when they win, we all lose. Don't breathe God's air, feed on his food, sleep under the shelter he provides, and then blame him for not really caring about us. Good-looking, forbidden fruit will never satisfy a lustful heart. You see, that's why James said back in chapter one, verse eight, that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You can't have a mind that's trying to serve God on one hand and a heart that's pursuing your own sinful pleasures on the other hand. Those things will never reconcile. The trail of our thoughts must always lead to Christ. What we dwell on determines where we are going. We cannot incubate sin and arrive at holiness any more than I can put a cake in the oven and pull out a steak afterward. It can't happen. What goes in determines what comes out. That's why God is so adamant that we guard our thoughts. He says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, to take every thought captive. You want some help for how you bracket your thoughts? What is in play? What is allowed in a believer's mind? It's written for us in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence... And if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is our daily battle, isn't it? We wake up to this tension between what we know and the lingering remnants of sin. Yes, we're saved by Christ, made new by God our Father, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, but we still are in this fight. And when James mentions this fight, there's some element of hope slipped in there, knowing that we're not alone in that. In fact, we get to watch other believers work through that, who deal with the same tension and wrestle with that and come out the other side in the right path. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I want to do, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want to do. I mean, this is Paul. We look at Paul and think the guy, like, he may not walk on water, but maybe he's like an inch below. Like, he's like, he is, this is Paul. And Paul's saying, I battle with this. He says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members, there's that word, members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, Who will set me free from this body of death? Who's going to liberate me from this? And then that wonderful statement in Romans 7, 25. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God. Because Christ has solved this. 
the war with sin can come to an end. Its mastery over me is broken. I got to deal with the remnants of it, but the mastery of it is broken. Back in James, though, we read this tension. He points out the source. He shows us the deadly desires that plunge us into sin, but the vocabulary takes us deeper. Look at verse two. He says, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I mean, these are graphic words. You lust, you're envious. Lust is, I want that. Envy says, I don't want you to have it. Lust says, I want that thing, that person, whatever it is. Envy says, I want it for me and you can't have it. Those words are a pathway. What starts with a desire breaks into lust, becomes a plan of envy and action breaks out. We go flying down this pathway. It's so graphic. In fact, James says, lust culminates in murder. He uses the same word in the same way that Jesus does in Matthew 5, where he talks about your anger is in God's economy, murder. Our looking at somebody, and maybe the word doesn't come out of our mouth, but our thought is, you idiot. You're such a fool. I can't stand you. In God's economy, that's murder. That's assassinating character. That's taking down someone that Christ gave his life for. God says, that's murder. Your lust, you may not have done the external action, but the heart is the same. Envy takes us into fighting and quarreling, more of this conflict and tension fueled by our passions. I want it, I'll do what it takes to get it, it's mine. One author said that cravings underlie conflict. What we crave is the backdrop for the conflict. The sinful impulses, selfish ambition, prideful passions, that's the root of our troubled relationships. Those angry words vault out of our mouth and they come from our heart. Jesus said that, Luke 6, 45, the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks that which fills his heart. You have to ask the question, what are you filling your heart with? What do you want? It's the same lesson we learned back in chapter one, verse 14, where James says, each one is tempted when he's carried away, enticed by his own lust. When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin's accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. He's saying, understand the pathway. The pathway is so clear. The pathway is our desires that go unchecked, that fuel the lust, that becomes an action. And that action is the destruction of relationships the pivoting of the body from a worship of Christ to a conflict with one another. But James told us in chapter one, verse 17, you may remember this verse, every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. He reminds us that every good gift comes from God who knows us, who created us and gives us his blessing. And look at the end of verse two. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. He says, you want things, just ask for it. He's the author of all good gifts. He's the giver of all good gifts. He's the supplier of all good things. He says, just ask for it. He's the source. You say, okay, well then I'm gonna ask God to fulfill my lust, my envy. No, look how James answers it in the next verse. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives 
so you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, that takes us into a category where you may even be praying for something that's a good thing, but with a sinful heart. We may be praying for something that's a good thing, but with a heart that's consumed back with our pleasures. Motives matter in prayer. God does not welcome us into his presence to satisfy our sinful cravings. You see, this is a a lesson on surrender embedded in this text that even in our prayer life, we go to God with our concerns, our worries, our desires. We pour it out before him and we conclude by saying, your will be done. I want your will. Align my desires with your desires and Lord, accomplish what you want with me, through me till the day I see you face to face. Paul said in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And that includes prayer. That includes prayer. This is a runaway train. You see how it gets out of control. It starts in our minds, contemplating temptation, feeding our flesh, and somewhere along the line, we even ask God to provide what we want to selfishly consume. And just when you think we got to the bottom of it, it gets worse. James talks to us about these deadly desires. And then in verses four through six, he talks to us about a fatal friendship, a fatal friendship. Look how verse four four starts. He says, adulteresses. What a graphic word. Adulteresses, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Adulteress. You're standing there with your wife and staring at another woman. You're holding your husband's hand and thinking about another man. We're one with Christ, but strategizing for another pathway of pleasure. We're loved by the creator, but we only want the creation. We're saved from sin, but we're flirting with it, thinking no one in heaven is paying attention. This word adulterous is such a vicious word. It's the destruction of trust, the severing of relationships, making a mockery out of something that's sacred. James says, friendship with the world is adultery. No one can serve two masters. It's insane. It's the insanity of a man proposing to the woman of his dreams and kneeling down and saying those magical words of, will you marry me? And she says, partially. I mean, how would that go over on your wedding day when the pastor says, will you take this woman to be your bride or you take this man to be your husband? And you say, 50%. I mean, that's a disaster. That's, that's insane. That's what James is saying. You can think of illustrations like that outside the room, but this gets really sobering when you realize it's in the room. It's in our chair. It's in us. James is saying, this is how disgusting and violent this is. Adultery attempts to get from someone else what God designed only for marriage to satisfy. Spiritual adultery is attempting to get from someone else or something else what only God can provide. Spiritual adultery is attempting to get from something else what only God can provide. You want peace and God says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. You want comfort and God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. You want love and God says, nothing will separate you from my love. God says, everything you're desiring I'm giving to you. I'm here offering it to you. It's right here. In our selfishness, we say, I recognize that, but this is a whole lot better. 
and we go down a pathway of destruction. Save yourself the agony of endless devastation by finding in Christ what only he provides. The verse continues. He says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Say, how's that adultery start? It starts with incubating a friendship, aligning with the world's emotions, affections, spending intimate time longing to be affirmed by the world, embracing its culture, its reactions, its priorities. The goal of the world is self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-satisfaction, self-indulgence. And we build that friendship with the time and the interest and the shared experiences that we treasure with the world. James is warning us, get your eyes open. Be alert. Understand that our enemy, which is Satan, wants to do everything he can to destroy you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And the way he seeks is to solicit your affections. James says that this makes you an enemy of God. Look, the world does not tolerate God's friendship and God doesn't tolerate the world's friendship and you can't live between the two. It's one or the other. To be an enemy of God is one who closely aligns with Satan and puts yourself at the mercy of God. James is saying that's the stuff we're saved out of. Don't go back and live like that. Don't go back and repeat those things. Don't go back and reiterate all the stuff you once did. You're saved out of that. Remember what true religion is from James 1.27? Not only care for the orphan and widow, but to keep oneself unstained by the world. No blemish, no mark, no adultery. You can't be a friend of God and of the world. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Stop flirting with the world. Loving sinners doesn't mean we imitate them. Be in the world, but not of it. It doesn't mean I absorb it, affirm it, and implement it. But you know what? There's good news. And the good news is this for believers. God never lets you sin successfully. God will never let his children sin successfully. God never lets that go on indefinitely. Look at verse five. It says, do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he's made to dwell in us. James says, hey, God made you. He made your body, made your soul, and he wants all of it. He made you and he wants you. Hey, that's incredible. You may feel despised and rejected by everybody on earth. You may have been betrayed by everybody on earth, but God says, I made you and I want you. You're mine. He's jealous for our heart. He made it and he wants it to beat for him. So what do we do? How do we break free from all of this tornado of conflict and chaos? How do we break free from the pattern of lustful thinking that fuels envy that erupts into this murder and quarreling? How do we break free from that? Look at verse six. It says, but he gives a greater grace. That is so good, isn't it? He gives a greater grace. If you're looking for your next tattoo, this is it. He gives a greater grace. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. You understand that? Mercy is God withholding what I do deserve. Grace is God giving what I don't deserve. It's not a prize we win. It's not a paycheck we earn. It's not a treasure we find. It's a gift from God to us. 
But you remember this, he gives that the place where we least deserve it. You remember Romans 5, verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for who? The awesome people, right? No. He died for the ungodly, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we're at our point of pride, when we're at the peak of all of our arrogance and a pursuit of autonomy and wanting to reject God and run from him and immerse ourselves in sin, Christ says, I'll die for you. I'll die for you. But there's a sober statement that follows this tremendous exaltation. He says, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. God resists. God thwarts. God frustrates. God destroys the way of the proud. Could it be Could it be that the reason we're not moving in the direction we want to move, we're not getting what we want, things aren't going well, could it be that the reason is we have unbridled arrogance and unchecked pride that's spilling over into every category of life? Could it be that the reason we never are satisfied is because we are craving the wrong things, we're longing and lusting after the stuff that the creator made, but not after the creator? You see, here's the thing with pride is that it's blinding. Pride can't diagnose pride. Pride can't diagnose pride. You cannot, from a place of pride, say, wow, I'm really proud. I'm proud of that. I'm proud. It takes the Spirit of God working in our hearts. It takes an open Bible in front of you. It takes a circle of believers around you to help us see that pride, be confronted, be restored. Mark down Haggai chapter one. You need to go read this book. It's two chapters, take you about seven minutes at the max. Chapter one of Haggai, there's an incredible illustration of God confronting Israel's pride. Israel was sent to build a temple. They get there, they don't work on the temple, they work on their own houses. And God comes along and says, you have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothes and no one's warm enough. He who earns, earns wages and puts them into a purse with holes. And God says, consider your ways. Stop the insanity. Look at what all this is doing, all this striving and effort and all the work you put into us. And you got nothing. Verse nine, God says this. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, catch this. God says, I blow it away. (laughs) What are you gonna do? I mean, the one who created the oxygen you're inhaling and walking on the dirt that is beneath you, he made all that. You're going out, you're getting clothes, put them on, you're never fully clothed, you eat, you're never satisfied, you drink, you're never drunk. You you earn money, you put it into a purse, it's like a sieve and just right through. You say, I got nothing. And God says, yeah, it's because I blow it away. You bring it home and and I'm doing it, and you will never be successful. Why? Because God doesn't let his children sin successfully. Because God does not let you find joy in the things that put his son on the cross. Because God says, I resist the proud. I am opposed to the proud. Do not be in that category. 
what James says, then look at the end of verse six. Takes us back to this wonderful word. He says, but God gives grace to the humble. Again, God gives what I do not deserve. He hands this out to those who love him. He opens the storehouses of his treasure, of his compassion, his kindness, his love, and he pours it into the life of his children. There's a wonderful word picture of this in John chapter 1, verse 16. Write that verse down and go look at it sometime. John 1, 16, it says, From the fullness of his love, we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. That word picture, grace upon grace, is like the ocean waves rolling in. Grace upon grace. Layer upon layer of God's love lavishing and rolling up into our life, filling us with his compassion, filling us with his kindness, filling us with his mercy, filling us with his strength to endure trials. Layer after layer coming in and you can't stop it. You can't stop it. You go to sleep and guess what? Psalm says he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. You can't stop the grace of God that's gonna roll into your life. We can't prevent that. God is saying to us in the most encouraging and comforting and thoughtful words that he gives grace to the humble. This is who catches his eye. Isaiah 66, two, this is the one to whom I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The one who's humble, the one who's broken, the one who knows their position is the one who receives the grace. And you know what? It's that grace that we need to solve the conflicts, right? Catch this. God gives what he requires. God gives what he requires. Someone said that once. God gives to us what he requires from us. He gives us love so we can give his love to other people. He gives us compassion so we can give his compassion to other people. He gives us mercy so we can give his mercy to other people. He gives us discernment so we can use that discernment to help other people. He gives us his grace so we can give his grace to other people. You say, how do I get that? How do I move towards humility? How do I move from this world of chaos and turmoil to peace? Well, God in his mercy answers that question in verse, verses seven down through verse 12. He gives us a number of just bullet point, quick one word statements that burst into our minds with an expressive amount of thought. I'll give them to you here as we work through this. How do we move on the path of peace? Number one, submit. Submit therefore to God. Submit therefore to God. That's a word for surrender. To lay down my will and say, not my will, but your will be done. To subordinate my desires to his desires. I can't partially submit any more than I can partially get on a roller coaster, right? I've got twin daughters that are 14. One of them's a pole vaulter, the other's a violinist. I don't know. I mean, if that's not fraternal, I don't know what is. The, you cannot be a partial pole vaulter. It is an all or nothing experience. You are either going for it or you are on a walk. I mean, there is nowhere in between. This is a total submission, a complete giving of yourself to what God has done. It's the heart of Samuel as a young boy who said, here am I, Lord, what? Send me. It's the heart of Job who said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. 
It's such a beautiful word because when we submit, we find rest. We find peace. We find the comfort that our heart longs for. Mark down Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving and know that I am God. There is a blessed peace and comfort that comes on the other side of laying down your will and just openly saying before God, your will be done. Whatever you want to do, wherever you want to take me, I'll go with you. Second, here in verse seven as well, it says resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It sounds so simple. Resist him, okay? It doesn't say form a lynch mob and go after him. No devil hunting parties, no weirdness, no bizarre formulas. How do you resist the devil? Give him the one thing he can't stand, scripture. Give him the thing he hates. It's Satan repellent. Throw some Bible verses at him and watch how quickly he runs. He doesn't run from you. He's not scared of you, obviously. He comes after you. He's scared of the God who indwells you. He's scared of the power of the word that condemns him ultimately. So do what Jesus did in the wilderness and put the word of God right in front of him. Psalm 119, 11, how are your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You memorize it, we sing it, we put theology in our heads so that we repeat it throughout the week. We quote it to one another, we encourage each other with it. We continue to put the word of God in front of us so we might be able to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Third, Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to him. There's a big difference between drawing near and drifting from something. No police officer drifts their gun out of a holster, right? They draw it with intentionality because there's something that has to happen. There's a plan that has to be executed. We're insane if we don't have a plan for drawing near to God. And you know what? You being here today is part of that plan. Because we gather together to have our minds encouraged and exhorted. The word confronts us and that we're able to encourage and strengthen one another. Draw near to God. Move closer to him. We drift away. We drift out into open water, into a dangerous territory without a clear plan to move closer and closer to God. Not only does verse 8 give us the third one, to draw near to him, but there's two more in verse 8 I put into one of purify. Purify. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Cleanse and purify, remove the impurities, turn from sin, see the sin, repent of the sin, mortify the sin, and move on. But the question is this, have you so given your heart over to sin that opportunity is the only thing you lack? Have you so given your heart over to incubating sinful thoughts and passions and role-playing that in your mind so that the only thing you're missing is the opportunity to execute? You'll know that's true because when anger flashes into words, you didn't just get angry, you've been angry. You've been incubating that for a long time. It just finally found a point of expression. What James is telling us is don't just deal with the symptom. Don't just deal with the words when they rock it out of your mouth. Don't get a better muzzle. Repent, change your heart. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Get radical with sin, run from it. How seriously are you dealing with it? Because it's trying to kill you. Are you trying to kill it? There's victory in Jesus and we have freedom. As Paul says in Romans 6, the mastery of sin has been shattered. The chains are broken. So live like free men and women. 
with a clear conscience, with no fear of death. Oh, we all have the scars of sin, but we don't live under its power because it's been broken by the mercy of God and our sin's been covered by His grace. Verse 9 gives us the word mourn. It says, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. You see, that's a really dark verse to put in this context, but it's so critical. We use the word mourning, and that's a brutal experience. Brutal experience. Some of you have lost the love of your life. Some of you have buried a child. Some of you have gone through the valley of the shadow of death, and by God's grace, you're still standing, but the mourning isn't over. You've lost loved ones. You've lost jobs. And the grief and the tragedy of those things is so very real. But the question James put before us in verse 9 is, when is the last time you mourned over sin? When was the last time we were so broken over our selfishness, over our arrogance, over our lack of gratitude? Do a study sometime in the scripture of all the people God killed for not saying thank you. All the way that cataclysmic judgment came upon Israel for not being grateful. And yet how often we abuse God's grace and ignore his warnings and plunge into sin and then make a joke out of it. Sin isn't funny. There's no humor in hell. Don't turn earth into it. Never laugh at what put Christ on the cross. There's no humor there. This word for mourning is the same word that's used in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. The context of mourning is being broken over sin. And when you're broken over sin and you have God's grace, there is great comfort. That even though, yes, you did it, yes, there are consequences, yes, there is destruction, you stand before a holy God and say, it's my fault, I sinned, forgive me. I need your grace, I need your mercy. And it's that point that you receive his comfort. So James says, Be miserable and mourn. Stop the laughter. Deal with the sin. Just a couple more. Verse 10 says, humble. Be humble. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he'll exalt you. We've already seen this word humble before back in verse six. He's saying move in this direction. It's a verb. He's telling us to move towards humility. You know, that's a progressive walk. That's not instantaneous. No one goes from being wicked to completely humble overnight. That's a progression. We move in that direction. And that's part of the whole Christian experience. We move that way. But in being humble, we admit who we are. We have an accurate assessment of who we are. Paul said in Romans 12, 3, do not think more highly of himself than you ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. This is so encouraging. Be humble. Recognize who we are and be thankful that God is giving us grace. One of the hallmarks, one of the the mile markers towards humility is gratitude, is thankfulness, is counting your blessings, is sitting down at times in different intervals and just saying, let's take inventory the way we've seen God work today. Let's take inventory the way we've seen God work this month. Let's look at how he's given us his grace in unique ways in this year. Be humble. Then verse 11 and 12 take us back into this context of dealing with other people. And the word honor seems appropriate, to honor one another, to speak with words of love. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. 
But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who's able to save and destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Who are you who judge your neighbor? He says, listen, going back to the very start, all the quarrels, all the conflicts, all the fighting, all the arguing, all of the tension that's going on amongst the body, it's resolved. Peace is applied when you surrender your heart to Christ, when you walk in holiness, when you show the love that God gives to us to one another and honor each other in a way that honors him. You say, what's at stake with all this? James is arguing this, and over and over again throughout all these chapters, he's giving us all this instruction, telling us, do, 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 do. He's teaching us, encouraging us, prompting us, provoking us. You say, what's the point of all this? Well, ultimately, it is to glorify God. Ultimately, it is to honor God, to walk in holiness before Him. But there's another purpose as well. As an illustration for that purpose, I've got a couple of brothers. One of them is a helicopter paramedic. And on the crew that he works on in his team, he has a task of researching helicopter paramedic crashes and figuring out what went wrong and how to apply that solution to his team to, as, as a preventative. I went with him on one of the investigations. And we were in South Florida. There was a helicopter that had taken off from its base to go and get a patient. And in process, it had crashed. We were able to talk to the paramedic aboard. There was a pilot, co-pilot, a nurse, and a paramedic. And he told us a story that they left on a typical clear South Florida night, going up and as they would often do, go out over the Gulf and come back inland to avoid air traffic over the land. Getting this patient was of extreme urgency, so they were flying at full speed, trying to get there as fast as they could. They had checked the weather report before they took off and it said a clear night, no problem, good to go. They get up in the air and as they're flying at full speed, a little bit of rain started to hit the windshield of the helicopter, a little bit of turbulence. It started to pick up and get worse and get worse and get worse until at full speed, the helicopter hit the top of the water and started to break into pieces as it disintegrated. It was a relatively new machine and the pilot was unfamiliar with the elevation controls and didn't realize that he had slowly been descending. What he thought was rain was actually the uptake of water from the, from the gulf hitting the blades and coming back on the helicopter. Only seconds until at full speed they hit. Began to tumble, the rotor, the blades, everything breaks off and this fuselage is tumbling over the surface of the water till it comes to a stop and starts to sink upside down. Well, inside that helicopter is all the gear and stuff that had been broken free and floating around. Your mouth and nose are filled with a mixture of salt water and jet fuel and trying to find some element of consciousness. What do you do? Well, the paramedic told us he did the one thing he'd been taught to do and that was to find a reference point. And that reference point was the center of his chest rig where the seatbelts connect because chest rig leads to seatbelt, seatbelt leads to door, door leads to handle, handle leads to out. And when he swam up through the water that night, he breached the water and looked into the eyes of the pilot, the co-pilot, and the nurse, all who survived because they found a reference point. The analogy to this passage is that reference point needs to be you. Your life in this world, before an unbelieving world, needs to be the one thing that does not move, the one thing that does not change, the one thing that stands clearly as salt and light before an unbelieving world that's filled with darkness and decay so that when in desperation they reach for help, they know that Christ is visible through you and they reach for you. 
What's at stake here is not just that we have a bunch of Christians that are going to get along together. We're going to do that perfectly in heaven. What's at stake here is that we have Christians that get along and solve conflicts so that others see Christ in us and see a supernatural way of extending love and forgiveness and grace to each other so that we advance his kingdom. Well, then you may say, well, what do we do with all that? If we're walking in holiness, we're walking in righteousness, and we're doing all this, how do we live our lives? Anyone ever ask the question, what's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? What job do I take? Where do I travel? Who do I marry? How do we raise kids? Do we public school, private school? Do we free range parent? Like, what do we do? Ever ask those questions? Well, guess what? God answers it, but not till next week. That's in verse 13 through 17. You can read it, but next week we'll get into answering the question, what is God's will for our lives? Well, as this text shows us, God came to give peace. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to declare peace, to declare that the war with God is over. And the night before he died, he gathered his disciples into the upper room and took bread and broke it and took a cup. And of the bread, he said, this is a symbol. This is my body broken for you. And of the cup, he said, this symbolizes my blood. This is my blood poured out for you. As often as you drink it, as often as you eat this, remember me. For Christians, it's a sober celebration. It's a a weekly reminder that our sins are paid for, that grace has been given to us, that Jesus rose from the grave and the power of sin and death has been shattered. But maybe, Christian, because of what we've studied today, you might be alerted to an issue of conflict, a place where you're not reconciled with someone else, where it's your fault, and you might have some work to do today. Maybe a unique way before you partake in communion today, this is a time to just sit and pray for a moment and to ask God's forgiveness for your part in that quarrel and conflict, for your part in that lust that leads to envy, for what we have done and resolve today to take the first step to reconcile to the extent possible with others. If you're here and you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, you never turned from your sin, you've not believed in Him to forgive you of your sin, then Scripture warns against participating in this. This is for Christians. But what we want you to know is the forgiveness that can set you free from the guilt that is bearing down on you today. Let's go to God in prayer as we remember the peace that He gives to us.